break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 1st of November 2021. Very happy to be back with you, as we always are, and we've got plenty for you here on the show. As we always do, we're going to be talking about military contracting here in the United States. Pretty lucrative, as you might expect. We're also going to be talking about the millions of people in the United States who are totally excluded from jury pools and thus serving on juries. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to talk about the protest sweeping Sudan in the wake of a coup. Those were sounds from the March of Millions that took place in Khartoum, Sudan on Saturday as huge numbers of people flooded the streets of the capital city in opposition to a coup that took place on October 25th and who, in their own words, are standing up for the spirit of the 2019 uprising that toppled Sudan's longtime ruler, Omar al-Bashir. At least three protesters were killed by live fire from militarized forces backing the coup and at least 100 were wounded. That brings the reported death toll to... 12 killed and hundreds wounded, at least since the coup began on October 25th. The government is denying that live rounds were used or that they killed anyone. However, these accounts seem clearly contradicted by video emerging from the country. Protesters were back out on the streets of the capital Sunday, and reports are that the protest movement is blocking various roads and also that the military has set up a range of checkpoints. So in the capital, at least, it appears there's an ongoing struggle for control of the streets. The coup has drawn diverse responses from governments around the world, which has been spawning all sorts of theories about what's going on behind the scenes, so to speak. The U.S. government has denounced the coup and frozen some funds along with the IMF and World Bank. Although that being said, the U.S. was given advance notice of the coup and appears to have more or less done nothing, and their condemnations have a pro forma cast to them. The United Nations has also denounced the coup, and the African Union has suspended Sudan from its membership. However, neither body has significant leverage over the country anyways. Egypt is supporting the military quite openly. In fact, literally the day after the coup, Egypt and Sudan started a military exercise, which is about the clearest sign of support you could really give in a situation like this. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are, in terms of statements, softly supporting the military and the coup, and allegedly behind the scenes heavily supporting them. Rumor has it that the reason the military isn't concerned about the financial freeze from the U.S. and other sources because they expect golf money to fill the vacuum. This all, of course, has opened the door to, as we mentioned, all sorts of theories. What's important to note here is no one who really knows what's going on is talking that much. So best to take all the various grand theories about what this means geostrategically with a grain of salt. 
for instance. One major point that has been raised is that Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE all prefer a military government because it's more likely to back the policies they prefer in the region, and in the case of the Gulf, protect their huge investments in export-oriented agriculture in Sudan. While that may be true, it's important to note that the pre-coup government, with the civilian-led cabinet cohabiting with the military figures who launched the coup, had not given any indication that they disagreed with this broader regional policy. The civilian-led government, led by ousted Prime Minister Hamdak, had agreed with Egypt on the dam issue in Ethiopia, backed the broader U.S. position in Ethiopia, not made any moves of any substance to stop the Gulf financial presence in the country of Sudan, and normalized relations with Israel along the lines that Egypt, the U.S., and the Gulf prefer for states in the Arab and Muslim world to take. So there isn't any real sign of major policy differences between those who launched the coup and those who were cooed out, at least not that have really appeared in the open. In fact, that's one major point being made by many of the organizations at the heart of the protest in 2019 and again here in the protest opposing the coup, like the Sudanese Communist Party and elements of the Sudanese Professional Association. It helps to take a slight step back and remember who the forces are here. In 2019, a huge mass movement took the government of al-Bashir out of power. He was ushered out by a wing of the military that turned on him and embraced a section of the protesters organized under the moniker Forces for Freedom and Change. However, critical elements of the protest movement, including, as we mentioned, the Communist Party, many professional associations and newly formed resistance committees, and by newly formed, I mean they were formed in 2019, rejected this whole setup, arguing that it looked to them just like a shuffling of the elite deck chairs. And events since then seem to have borne that out. As the communists note, the so-called civilian government working with the military had been, quote, purposefully adopting visions, strategies, and tactics that opposed the revolution demands of deconstructing the old economic and political system. And further, that the so-called civilian government had, quote, a sluggish approach to legally bringing the old system's criminals to justice and delaying or refusing to hand over Omar al-Bashir to the International Criminal Court. And they also noted additionally that there was a, quote, appointment of ministers regardless of competence and treatment of such privileged positions as war spoils, end quote. So when you keep this in mind, there's fairly strong evidence that the coup isn't so much about policy, but power. The military and associated forces and the civilian cabinet basically arguing over who's ultimately going to run the country and just a slight modification of the previous status quo. Again, more of a shuffling of the deck chairs. Now, all of the civilian forces who back the post-2019 but pre-coup government are against the military either. In fact, some are aligning with the military, including important former leaders of insurgencies whose supporters have been protesting in favor of the military, most notably Mini Manawi, who's the governor of Darfur. The military, it seems, isn't unwilling to deal with civilians and elements of the 2019 uprising, just only the ones they feel will give them their taste of power, so to speak. Interestingly enough, the coup government seems to have brokered a deal with the leaders of the Beja ethnic group in East Sudan that had mounted a one-month blockade of Port Sudan that had shut down oil exports from Sudan and South Sudan. The blockade, which was enforced by huge mass protests at times, has its roots in the same issues. The east of Sudan has for many years suffered from disproportionate poverty in an already deeply impoverished country. The Beja in particular felt left out of a deal the pre-coup government cut with other groups in the region to allegedly address this state of affairs. It seems the military has sought to resolve those concerns and at least for now perhaps found a way to resolve them. So, as a whole, it seems like the military leading the coup is trying to assemble a new coalition of forces to present to the world as legitimate and representative and caring for the spirit of the 2019 revolution, so to speak, essentially to get everything unfrozen and move forward as the so-called legitimate government. 
And at the same time, on the street, you have both the civilian elites formerly in the government trying to get back into power via the leverage of protest, and you also have much more radical forces who hope the new eruption of mass anger can lead to a more thoroughgoing process to make changes to the social and economic status quo. And these are all complicated overlapping issues, and there are even a few more players we haven't yet mentioned. What's crucial to understand, however, is that, again, the mass protests sweeping Sudan are ultimately about disagreements around the future of the country. If it will maintain the same inequalities and oppressions as the past 30 or so years, or if deeper, more substantive change is possible. Jury selection is back in the news today as the process to pick a jury in the trial of accused right-wing murderer Kyle Rittenhouse begins in Wisconsin. So it seemed to us as good a time as any to let you know that roughly 20 million people in the United States are barred from serving on juries because of various state-level laws preventing people convicted of certain crimes from serving on juries. The first and most obvious result of this is to make jury pools significantly less diverse. As the Prison Policy Institute notes, quote, of the approximately 19 million Americans with felony convictions in 2010, an estimated 36 percent, nearly 7 million people, were black, end quote. They also note that a 2011 study of a county in Georgia detailed that, quote, 34 percent of black adults and 63 percent of black men were excluded from juries because of criminal convictions. So gives you a sense of the broader dynamics there. They also further noted that, quote, in New York State, approximately 33 percent of black men are excluded from the jury pool because of the state's felony disqualification law. So if you're black in America, the idea of being tried by a jury of your peers is certainly not a guaranteed right despite it allegedly being a constitutional right of yours. And it does make a difference. Diverse jury pools, that is. A study done on the impact of diverse juries found that, quote, diverse groups deliberated longer and considered a wider range of information than did homogenous groups. That same study went on to detail that when white people were members of more racially diverse juries, they, quote, raised more case facts, made fewer factual errors, and were more amenable to discussion of race-related issues, end quote. There's also a different study that found similarly that those who serve on racially mixed juries, quote, are more likely to respect different racial perspectives and to confront their own prejudice and stereotypes when such beliefs are recognized and addressed during deliberations, end quote. The laws are quite a patchwork, but most states have some sort of exclusion. The following states all bar you from serving on a jury forever if you have a past felony conviction. Arizona, Arkansas, Delaware, Georgia, Hawaii, Kentucky, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New York, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Utah, Vermont, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Texas all do the same and bar you for some misdemeanors as well. And just about every state has some sort of exclusion, minus Maine, Indiana, North Dakota, Colorado, Illinois, and Iowa who only restrict those who are currently incarcerated. Well, except Maine, where you're actually eligible to serve on a jury if you are currently incarcerated, but you are excused. It's important to note in many of these states, people who are excluded are eligible to vote. That's the way jury pools, of course, are chosen here in the United States from registered voters. Around 5 million people are thought to be barred from voting due to contact with the criminal legal system. And again, 20 million people roughly are barred from serving on juries. So, just something else to think about when people tell you a court verdict means that a trial is inherently a mark of justice.
That's the debate in Congress over how to gut the budget bill in Congress goes on. The question of priorities comes to the forefront. The now gutted original bill was proposing to spend $3.5 trillion over 10 years, about $350 billion a year. That was declared by conservatives in Congress and major corporations and their lobbyists to be too much money since it required the rich to pay more in taxes. Interestingly enough, the National Priorities Project has noted in some new data that over the last 10 years, the U.S. has spent almost the exact same amount of money, $3.4 trillion, on payments to military contractors. Not the total defense, quote-unquote, budget, mind you, just the money paid to private contractors for various military-related tasks. So yes, in Congress, it's considered totally fine. There's been trillions of dollars on guns, bombs, Burger King franchises, uniforms, and various planes and ships that often don't work, but not to expand medical care for senior citizens, eliminate the public housing repair backlog, provide free community college, or set up a clean energy standard. In other words, destroying the planet, yep, sounds great. Saving the planet and helping the people living on it, well, we just can't do that. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 